Today on the show, I'm happy to have Brandon Allgood. He's the owner of Obsidian Scientific. Obsidian Scientific is a consulting firm that specializes in helping healthcare companies think about and implement data-driven and machine learning solutions. So along this 18-year career in AI, being an early adopter, there's a story about hiring the wrong CEO. What happened, Brandon? Yeah, we did a number of things that were maybe not the right thing to do. So this was in the very first company I actually joined out, out of grad school. We were a young company at the time we were developing a AI technology for doing small molecule design. It was clear to us at the time that big pharma blockbusters like Lipitor and others, those were going to go off patent soon. And their model of going after these big blockbuster drugs was starting to fail. It was clear that research was not delivering new drug candidates and the process of what I would say, throwing a bunch of shit at the wall and seeing what sticks was not really delivering on what we needed in terms of new drugs for new diseases. And so we felt that large-scale computing at the time it was Beowulf clusters, not the cloud. It was using large-scale machine learning on big Beowulf clusters to drive chemical design was going to start to deliver more of those drugs early on. And so that was our idea. We figured we would just build it and they would see our genius and come running. We were a bit naive at that. And so having built a system like that, got in front of pharma and getting in front of pharma is a hard thing in that it's like what we used to call, it's like punching a marshmallow. It's like pharma's a, every pharma company is different and every pharma company is a bit of a hydra. Who do you talk to? The CEO, you could talk to the CEO, but the CEO is not really running the day-to-day operations, but then do you talk to the head of research? Can you even get to the head of research? Do you talk to, you don't want to get stuck talking to IT because they're going to use an IT solution. There's all this kind of ways in which to talk with pharma. And on, and at that point, I would say pharma was also not really, didn't quite know how to interact with us to begin with. They're used to transacting around, here's a molecule. Do you want to buy it or not? Less than here's a software solution. Here's an AI solution, which again, they didn't understand. How do you interact with that? So our idea was that we really needed a CEO that understood the in, could speak the language. Because that's one thing you also find out in business. Unfortunately, even if you have a great idea and you have a great technology, oftentimes it comes down to relationships and do they know the secret handshake to get into the secret party room where deals are actually done. That's frustrating for me as the technical founder and often the scientist involved. I want our technology to stand on its own, but that unfortunately I've learned over time that doesn't happen. And so we decided we, we needed a CEO. It wasn't one of us. We were all young. We were in our twenties and early thirties at the time, a bunch of us were PhDs. So a little older than a lot of other founding teams. So we went out, we did a large interview process to look for a CEO. And ultimately we decided to take someone from pharma, again, assuming that they knew how to do the deals. We brought in someone who from business development side of pharma, again, business developing, transacting, doing deals, they would know the people, the right people in the right handshakes. And we brought this person in to be our CEO. And it was a disaster in that he didn't understand what we did on that number one. So while yes, he could talk pharma, he couldn't talk machine learning. He would constantly use the wrong words in meetings and 
he would say, oh yeah, so we have a bunch of people working on machine language. Oh, it's machine learning. And he, he did never quite understood what the company he was leading did. And so we would be in meetings and they would often, you'd have people that are on the other side that knew what they were talking about. And then we, he would just say the, just, I would just, we would just cringe at some of the things that he would say. And in the end, he was, I would say more of a stereotypical BD person having drinks and high flying and winging it and not really quite understanding. And when you have a deep tech company trying to work, it turns out that that was, you need someone that can actually comprehend what you're doing. And even if they don't, even though, you know, they don't need, you don't want to ever, you often don't want to ever get into those type of deep details with your co-stars unless they want to. You still have to be able to speak normal, speak, talk about what you're doing in a more colloquial way. Yeah, that was one of the, one of the death nails in the end of that company was our, was that ultimately we weren't able to bring in one of those deals. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that, yeah, we definitely hired the wrong CEO. So what changed in the next venture you went into? Yeah. So interestingly enough, I mean, that whole story is, is there are many facets to that story as well. We had also constructed a board that was not the, with, that was at odds with itself as well. And we were actually about to raise a series B. We hadn't signed the deal, but we had an investor that was very interested in what we were doing, was willing to come in, but that investor at the very end got wind of our CEO challenges and our board challenges and ultimately pulled the series B term sheet. So that company crashed and burned. And once, once we were all fired, we actually formed what we called our coalition of the willing, which were a lot of the technical people that were at that company. We got together in, in a friend of ours basement, started talking about that, the fact that the, the technology and the ideas behind what we were doing was solid, but that we had, we had made some stumbles in, in terms of board structure and CEO. And so ultimately within a month of that company going down and letting us all go, we formed our new company, which was Numerate, and that company ultimately had a positive exit. And we built up from that. Not only did we build up from that, we went back to the investor that was going to give us a series B and said, Hey, oftentimes VCs talk about they invest in teams, not in, not necessarily in ideas or technologies. And we had 10 of, I would say 14 of their original employees from that first company agreed to join this new company, all the technical, most of the technical people, we said, okay, look, if you were going to invest in our team within the first company and it's about team, we've got 10 people that are willing to come back, try it again, build it again. We, and we can build it again and we can, and the VC said, yeah, no, absolutely. Show me that you're serious. And so we were able to also convince a few angels to come over and help us. We spent a year on angel funding. We all took super, we took major haircuts on our pay so we could make it through that first year. And ultimately he ended up, that venture capital firm ended up leading our series A. That's the kind of, we ended up scraping the bottom, scraping the trees with the bottom of the plane and ultimately took off. But again, it was a, it was a major journey. It's still a major journey to bring AI into healthcare. Like again, this was in 2007 and numerate didn't actually get an exit till four years ago. So even think 2007 to 2019, that's still another 12 years we put into this, into that. 
uh, really trying to figure out not only the technology and the platform that we're building, but how exactly to partner in an industry that's not used to partnering. They're used to selling, buying software as a kind of a software license, but the kinds of technologies we were developing, we were looking more of a, we were looking for more of a risk sharing partnership because we felt that the value of what we were building and the value that it was bringing to the company was not going to be well captured in, in, in kind of a typical SaaS licensing model. And you haven't stopped since you're doing another one now. Yep. Yeah. So again, sold that company to another startup company. So it was an interesting transaction, which we can also talk about, which was yeah. very bizarre for this, for kind of, for starting companies. But let's yeah, talk, so, about, let's talk about that actually, that, what that process is like of getting an exit. Yeah. So with all, with all startups, right, we were a solution looking for a business model. How, again, I described the conundrum within the healthcare space or within drug discovery and development space. One of the biggest problems is you're raising money. And so what are you raising money for? Are you raising money to develop a software platform or are you raising money to push drug programs forward? Because those are two different, very different activities that both require capital, both require a specific and very expert set of te teams. And trying to balance the investments in a platform and investments in programs becomes a challenge. And I would say no one's truly figured it out. There are some niche companies out there. People are still trying to figure that problem out. And I, I think at Numerate, we were successful in figuring that out. We were ultimately successful in being able to develop deal structures with some of the larger pharmaceutical partners we had that were, that was helping us. But if you think about startups in terms of risk, and risk mitigation, which is one way to think about innovation and startups. We had developed a platform that handled one of our prime, one of the primary risks in drug discovery and development, which is the chemical design risk. Can you come up with a small molecule that is not toxic, that gets into the body, that does what you want it to do, and then gets out, right? This is, these are, it's kind of multi-parameter optimization problem finding a compound that, that gets you there and using machine learning to, to guide you through that. And we were able to do that. We were able to be very successful at that. I would say the most successful of any company I've seen, but there are other risks. There's biology risk. Does building a small molecule that attaches to a particular protein, does it do anything for the disease you care about? That's actually a big question. Yes, it works in a cell. For the last time I looked, my grandmother doesn't look like a dish full of cells. So I'm, we're, we need something that's going to work in the whole body. And that's more of a biology risk. Have you connected? Do you really understand the mechanism of a dysfunctioning protein or dysfunctioning cell and its connection with disease? And so how well do you understand that? And can you de-risk that? Then there's also clinical development risk, which is, okay, you may understand that really well. Being able to find the patient, being able to make sure you're monitoring the right outputs, the right biomarkers within those patients in clinical trials, that's also a big risk. And so while yes, we solved the chemical design risk, we were still, we kept getting defeated by the biology risk. We would develop compounds that weren't successful ultimately, but were successful in animal models or in cell models. We developed molecules that we were told ultimately got to the clinic and just were not viable from a clinical trial perspective. And so at the end of, of kind of Nimrod's time, we decided the venture landscape has changed. Back when we started, you get a half a million dollars for your seed 
And then you get, if you are successful, you get, you get maybe a million to five for an A and scales up from that. Now we're sitting in a world where the vision fund is saying, here's a hundred million dollar series A. If you can't figure it out, go buy somebody who can. And so we're like, okay, we gotta, it's time to go big or go home. And the idea was then to take what we had built and build a full-fledged end-to-end pharmaceutical company based on and based on machine learning and data science from the ground up. I'm not saying that pharma doesn't already use data science, but they kind of retrofitted an existing process where you could re-envision doing this from a data science perspective outwards. I think there's real power in that. And we were trying to raise money around that. And ultimately we ran into a, to a man named David Barry, who is at flagship pioneering. We all know flagship these days from their backing of Moderna. So flagship, we pitched them knowing full well, they generally don't invest in companies like ours. Uh, again, they'd like to start their own companies and spin them out and invest in them. It'll bring invest in companies that come to them. And David understood the challenges of building a company, investing in technology platform, but also investing in programs and the challenges there and the need to go from end to end and really do this well and pour proper capital on it. And we said, great. So David, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to go outside the flagship model and invest in us. And he looked at us and said, nope, I'm going to start a company and buy you. And that was the strangest pitch I've ever gotten from a VC, but that was ultimately what ended up happening is he started Ballo Health, which then we, we kept a tight connection with them. And by the time, once he was able to raise a series A, he was a, he had enough capital to acquire Gumer. And so then we transitioned into Ballo Health, where I became the chief AI officer there and helped to build out that broader platform that is still the powerhouse behind Ballo Health today. Since then, I would say life has gotten in the way. It's been 18 years. I've taken very little vacations. And so last December, I, I left Ballo to strike out on my own. And in the last seven months, I've been building a consulting firm, Obsidian Scientific, where I'm helping large pharma, venture capital, small startups develop everything from AI strategies to AI solutions. I also provide interim technology management. So really taking the experience of 18 years of pounding my head against the wall in this industry and kind of making sure others can avoid those mistakes, a lot of the mistakes we've made. And is this fitting your lifestyle a little better now? My lifestyle at the, at right now, yeah, recently moved back to Seattle. I love Seattle. And the reason I love Seattle is the outdoor activities. So this does give me the time to do those and still make a decent, make a decent living. So if one of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you about the current venture, how could they do so? Yeah. So you can reach me at my email address is all good, which is a la my last name, obviously not a declaration good at obsidianscientific.com, or you can just go to the website obsidianscientific.com. Thank you, Brandon, for coming on the show. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Failing to Success. Make sure to smash that subscribe button. I'm your host, Chad Kalecki, and we'll see you next time.